listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our episode in a moment, but first, let's get to our week in review. On Wednesday, Mike and Dan on Ohio Mysteries Backroads did a fantastic episode on famous people buried in Ohio. Then, last Sunday, Paula told us about the murder of Christy Mullins, a murder in Columbus that happened in 1975. Be sure to take a stroll back and listen to those episodes. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years at the Akron Beacon Journal telling stories just like this, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Tonight is our second episode in an occasional installment that we're calling Street Names. It recalls the remarkable origins of some of the roads we drive on in Ohio with little thought on how they came to be named. We're specifically looking for roads that preserve some intriguing little piece of history. Tonight, we're going to tackle three more. The origin of Refugee Road... There are actually two of them, one that goes in from Franklin and into Fairfield County and a sister road in Licking County. Also, Johnny Cake Ridge Road in Lake County's Concord Township and Gullow Street in Cincinnati. One is pure American history saga. The other, a humorous addition to our list. And the last, a bittersweet personal story. Let's start with Refugee Road. There are two refugee roads, actually. One is on the southern end of Columbus. It's a road that's dotted with chain restaurants, schools, and houses, and a good amount of traffic. This road continues into Fairfield County. Somewhat to the north of this, there is a second refugee road in Licking County. It's parallel to its sister street in Columbus. Ohio has been home to numerous refugee groups, and still is, thanks to international institutes that help immigrants and asylum seekers transition to new communities. But the roads in Franklin, Fairfield, and Licking aren't a general reference to refugees in general. They were named in honor of a specific group of refugees who had an unparalleled journey to the Buckeye State. Emmy Beach of the State's Historical Society shared details of this special history with WOSU several years ago. And it's a story that goes way back to the Revolutionary War, and some very brave and daring allies who lived in Canada and risked all to help America win its freedom. The revolution that began with the Declaration of Independence in 1776, of course, was the war in which the American colonies fought the British to win our independence. But we didn't do it alone. I mean, it's probably fair to say we wouldn't have won at all, at least not at that time, if it weren't for the support of the French, who played a major role in our victory. 
But we had other allies too, including Canadians, particularly those living in Nova Scotia, who did what they could, even at great cost to themselves. Some of them joined the American military force, came right down here and put actual blood and sweat into their support. Others provided money or resources. Well, when the war ended, Americans were free of British rule, but Canadians were not. Great Britain still owned Canada. And anyone who helped the Americans were punished. After the revolution ended in 1783, the Crown identified those who had helped the American cause, labeled their behavior treasonous, and took away their possessions, including their land. That left a number of Canadians essentially homeless, without a whole lot of support from their neighbors who had sided with King George. So the Continental Congress of the newly formed United States of America proposed compensating Canadian sympathizers by inviting them to America and starting their life here with free land. I won't lie. Even though they offered to do this, they dragged their feet for almost 20 years. But eventually, in 1801, Congress stepped up and the so-called Refugee Tract was established in Ohio, setting aside 103,000 acres that spread over the present-day counties of Franklin, Fairfield, Licking, and Perry counties, all in central Ohio, which at the time was not yet a state, but part of the Northwest Territory. The Refugee Tract stretched for 42 miles eastward from the Scioto River. Now, it certainly sounded like a great idea. I mean, we needed new people on our frontier, and there was plenty of land for everyone. But actually, only enough Canadians accepted the offer to account for about half of what was set aside, a total of some 58,000 acres. In truth, many of them didn't want to live in the wild wilderness, which I should point out was still inhabited by Indians, not to mention being a rustic environment filled with wild animals, few roads, and little of what Canadians in a settled community would have come to expect. In the nearly 20 years it took for Congress to finally pass the bill for the refugee tract, many outcast Canadians had already established themselves in cities along the East Coast. Now, some of the Canadians who accepted the Ohio land turned it around and sold it to speculators, so they didn't settle here at all. But there were some who came and stayed. By the time the last claim was made, In 1816, 67 Canadian families were living in the refugee tract. They were given different amounts of land based on their contribution to the war. They ranged from a 160-acre plot that I found was given to a Samuel Fales to 2,240 acres awarded to the widow Martha Walker, John Edgar, Francis Cizeau, John Allen, Seth Harding, Samuel Rogers, and the heirs of James Boyd. By far, the most famous name to come from this group of refugees was Livingston. 
Colonel James Livingston served in the Continental Army from the start. He was originally from New York, but he had moved to and was living in Montreal. He left Canada to join the Revolution, and after the war, he was granted 1,280 acres in the refugee tract. What makes this name famous, though, is that one of his descendants was Alexander Livingston, who, generations after the colonel moved to Ohio, was still living in that tract. Livingston started a seed company and became famous for basically inventing the tomato. Prior to his efforts, tomatoes were believed by so many people to be poisonous. They were hard, untasty, bitter things. Alexander Livingston spent years crossbreeding them until the tomato became edible. And he's the reason the tomato is a common staple in every home. We did an episode on him. Look for it in our catalog at ohiomysteries.com. Now, let's get back to the road. What we know today as Refugee Road is State Route 104. As I said, it cuts through the southern part of the tract, through Franklin County and into Fairfield County. The similarly named road in Licking runs parallel along the north part of the tract. So the two roads kind of sandwich in that historic section. In Columbus, the original refugee tract lies approximately between 5th Avenue on the north and Refugee Road on the south. The Ohio State House and most downtown office buildings are located within this tract. I should mention that something else has a name that comes from this special piece of history. It's Truro Township in Franklin County near Reynoldsburg. The Canadians who settled there were Scots who came from Nova Scotia. They had founded a town there in Nova Scotia named Truro after they immigrated to North America. When they relocated to Ohio, they brought the name of their town with them. Yet another name found in connection with the Canadian refugees is found in Buckeye Lake. I mentioned widow Martha Walker being among the recipients of the largest plots. Well, Martha selected a place near Big Pond, which historians know made her very intrepid because the area was plagued with mosquitoes. Most people grabbed up land on higher ground and away from the water. They didn't want to have to deal with those pests. But Martha certainly picked something that lasted. Her name still graces Buckeye Lake's shore as Walker's Landing. For our second street name, let's head north to Lake County along the Lake Erie shoreline east of Cleveland. Lake is home to several communities, among them Concord Township. And on the north end of Concord Township is a busy road that runs from Painesville to Mentor, and it's called Johnny Cake Ridge Road. I love a good mystery, and this sure sounded like one. How did a road come to be named for a particular kind of food? There are actually at least three versions of how this road got its unusual name, so we'll never know for sure. 
but history lovers give the most weight to the story I'll tell you now. The name Johnny Cake Ridge Road is first identified on local maps in the early 1900s. The road itself is marked on maps from 1857 and 1898, but it doesn't have a name. If, however, you dig deeper, turns out there is a map from 1820 that uses the name Johnny Cake Ridge for this area. So, it looks like the name must have come from very early settlers, and that's why it syncs up with the most popular version of events, which took place two years earlier than that map, in 1818. In that year, a pioneer named Tobias Williams is thought to have stopped at an inn on this road. The inn itself was close to present-day Ohio 44, and it was built by an enterprising businessman who wanted to take advantage of folks who were traveling between the growing settlements in Cleveland to the west and Erie, Pennsylvania to the east. But the entrepreneur was not too imaginative. There was exactly one entree on the inn's menu, Johnny Cakes and Salt Pork. It was served up for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner, and Tobias Williams availed himself of this sweet and savory combination for all three meals. There was no Yelp or TripAdvisor in the 19th century, but that didn't stop Tobias from sharing his review of this menu item, although it's unclear whether he was celebrating it or simply alerting people on what to expect. He put up a sign outside near the inn that simply said, Johnny Cake. Back in 1818, very few people could read. Businesses typically adorned their shops with icons that were universally understood. You know, the way a barber would put out a red and white striped barber pole. So it probably helped more than hurt when some pranksters decided to bake a large Johnny Cake, reinforce it with horsehair, and attach it to the sign. Because of that sign, stagecoaches knew to pull up to the inn and let their travelers get a bite, and they started referring to the site as Johnny Cake Ridge, and a new street name was born. Johnny Cakes, if you don't know, and I didn't exactly, so I had to look it up. It's a savory cornmeal pancake. I found this recipe from the Concord Township Historical Society, if you want to give it a try. It's pretty simple. The ingredients are half a cup of flour, one cup of cornmeal, one to two tablespoons salt, an egg, and a cup of hot milk. Mix the dry ingredients first, stir in the remaining ingredients, then drop them onto a hot griddle, pancake style, and brown them on both sides. Serve them up with butter and syrup. I tried searching for any exciting history about Johnny Cake Ridge Road that might be worth sharing. I mostly turned up a smattering of stories about road improvements, but I did find this little item. In October of 1932, there was a brief moment of intensity when excavators working on Johnny Cake unearthed a three-foot-long hermetically sealed coffin. They immediately called the sheriff's office, and a large crowd assembled as Deputy Sheriff Cardina 
opened the metal box. Inside the coffin was the perfectly preserved body of a dog with a red ribbon around its neck. I never could find a follow-up story as to whether the dog's owner was identified, but clearly that pup was a beloved family member to somebody. One more story tonight. Lots of streets are named for people, some very notable army colonels and industrialists and philanthropists. For the most part, this series is avoiding those. But an interesting story is still an interesting story. And I came across a street in Cincinnati named for a local tailor who had seemed to have his handle on the American dream, but came to a very tragic ending. The street in question is named Gullo Street on the city's north side. That's G-U-L-O-W. It's not much of a street to speak of. If you blink, you'll miss it. Basically, it's a long city block with a handful of buildings and a parking lot. The only thing that really elevates this stretch of asphalt at all is that a couple of years ago, an eatery opened at the corner of Gullo and Hoffner and took its name the Gullo Street Bar. If you're in Cincinnati, check it out. It looks like a nice little gathering spot. So, where did the name Gullo come from? Well, the street honors the memory of August E. Gullo, a tailor who owned a dry goods shop at Knowlton's Corner in the late 1800s, and he lived on Hamilton Avenue in the Cumminsville neighborhood with his wife. They had several grown children, His namesake shows up in some newspaper stories as a well-known police gymnasium instructor. So this street used to be called Oak Street, but in 1870, while Mr. Gullo was still alive, city council changed the name to his. I don't know why. Apparently, it wasn't big enough news to make the papers, but the name still remains, and Mr. Gullo is permanently part of the neighborhood. But if having a street named after you seemed like a bright spot, Mr. Gullo's story turned very dark after that. He had two daughters die from tuberculosis, and they say it was a loss he could never recover from. He suffered for the next 10 years, family and friends believing he was descending into insanity. His wife was his caregiver, and she and her children wanted very much to keep him home. Some thought they should send him to an institution called Longview, but they didn't want to do that. It seems possible, probable even, that Mr. Gullo heard conversations to that effect and became convinced he was going to be taken away. In December of 1901, Mr. Gullo waited until his wife went to bed. Then he went into the kitchen, found a razor there, and began slashing his stomach. He immediately regretted it, and he called out to his wife, who woke up to the sound of her husband's screams and moaning and hurried to him. She found him on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. He was still alive. He apologized, said he was sorry, that he didn't want to die, not really, and a local physician was called. But the damage was just too much. 
Mr. Gullo died of his self-inflicted wounds six days later. He was buried at Spring Grove Cemetery. His death made front-page news in the Cincinnati Post. It's a sad little story, and no doubt we wouldn't even be talking about Mr. Gullo anymore. Except a little piece of him still lives on in the name of that little street. Folks, so many of our stories come from suggestions of listeners just like you. As a matter of fact, Refugee Road was brought to our attention by Craig, a longtime friend of this podcast. If there is a street name or, frankly, any great Ohio story of any kind that you want to make sure we're not missing, send us an email. We're at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every one of our episodes, check out ohiomysteries.com. And we will see you back here for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.